This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And hey, yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Andreana Clay, and I'm currently a professor at San Francisco State University. I teach in the sociology department, and I teach courses on theory and youth culture and music and queer studies. You got the chill, 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 chill. So the first song is You Gots to Chill, the EPMD song. And I chose this song because it was really sort of the first song that I felt like hip-hop really spoke to me. I mean, I'd been listening to it prior to that and had been to a couple of concerts and that sound, sort of the funk sound, the samples that they did, just the sound of it really sort of pulled me in. And it was one of the concerts that I saw, like back at that time, hip hop concerts were like four people, you know, four groups deep or whatever. So it was like EPMD, Public Enemy, Run DMC, I think it was their Raising Hell tour, and DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Just seeing EPMD, and then I think they were followed by Public Enemy right after that. And those two together really, like, sparked a curiosity and brought in all of these different sounds and, and lyrics that really sort of committed me to hip hop. It was just a night out, but it was so much more than that. D-E-R-I-C-K is my name, my spell. Things to the clientele, yo, I walk well. I'm not an MC, we talking all that junk about who give me who. Sound like a song. I just get down and I go for my Say check one, two, one, two, one, one, down two, line. To the average MC, I'm known as the Terminator. Funky D, the maker, who Jack Terminator. Destroying a ploy when you're rhyming a void. Never sweating your girl, why pay? Cause she's a speed choice. When I'm on his skin, I'm on his rock spot. I grab the steel with the crown on top in the beginning. I like to let my rhymes flow, rhymes flow. And at 12, I press cruise control. Sit back and relax. Let my rhymes tax. Maintain a breeze while I doubly max. Always calm under pressure. No need to act ill. Listen when I tell you, boy. You got to chill. You got to chill felt like hip hop to me. Like it brought in all these different aspects in contrast to like UTFO or something. Sort of the battle, which I thought was interesting. But it also just felt like it was so much, so much more. Their sound their skill and their use of samples, even the video. 
um, I feel like it brought in much more of the culture, like different aspects of it. Like it felt way more well-rounded. So I don't know if it was like the lyrics per se, it was just like his voice, or the, the voice and the, the samples that just made it felt like much more than just somebody sort of battle rapping. And they seem like, you know, an integral part, but the song just seemed so much richer than that. It was putting all of these different aspects of black culture together, like the music, like the sampling just really came out in a way that I hadn't experienced it before, that sort of took you back, but also was really contemporary and just felt richer. In case of a diss, not worry about a thing. Cause we can choose. I can turn the body out just by standing still. Make a lady scream and shout while the birds I kill. Take total control of your body and soul. Pack a nine in my pants when it's time I grew up in a town called Springfield, Missouri. It's like in southwest Missouri. It kind of straddles like the Midwest and the South. I think they now call it officially the Mid-South. Um, we felt really distinguished from Southerners, but it was still had sort of a Southern flavor in terms of racism. So the, the town was about 150,000, and there were about 2,000 black people. And my family, my grandmother, and my grandfather in particular were people that people knew. Like, people knew different black families. So, like, the Clays, that was our family. And I don't, the Bedells were another family. Like you knew pretty much everyone because it was a small community. And there were a lot of us, and I was also mixed race, so my mother is white and my father is black. And, and there was just a lot of us that were kind of coming up at the same time, it felt like. Like I had a cousin who was the same age as I was, and she, she was also black. And we just kind of ran in a a crew of people that all listened to the same kind of music and were really intrigued by hip-hop music. And, and there was even like a, a local DJ. There would be these house parties of, of like, I'd say when I was like 15 was when we really started going. And, and this resident DJ, his name was Juan Alexander, and he would seem to have like the latest music, you know, and we'd go to these house parties every weekend. And it just felt like that music really guided the different things we did in our adolescence. You know, Springfield is a railroad town, so like a lot of people in my family on both sides worked for the railroad. A lot of people worked for different factories that later moved to Mexico. And so it was informed by a working class consciousness in some ways, and a lot of people were in unions in our family. But it wasn't like sort of the quote-unquote inner city kind of ghetto experience that was being rapped about, but it still really informed, like, our experiences. Yo, man, what you need? Yo, uh, man, I need something, man. I need a 20, man. And what you got, man? I, I got this rope chain, man. Man, this shit look like that? a gold on the road shit hey, from the squat, man. It's real, man. This, this shit real. ain't real, man. You cool, man. fuck out of here and come back with some money, Come man. on, man. Be cool, man. Y'all Mexicans always come with this shit.
reason that I put Dope Man in the mix of those songs was I felt like that was a really a moment of politicization in a way for me because of the way, even though it, it is a really sexist song in a lot of ways and a lot of the language that they use, but I felt like just that they were so explicitly talking about crack cocaine and that that was like moving into our communities at such a rapid rate. And our community was small, so it was like hitting people that we knew. People I went to high school with started selling crack or selling dope or whatever, and, and then would quickly disappear. So it wasn't like people sold pot or smoked pot, and that was like normal in high school. But the minute that crack moved in, it just changed the landscape of where we were living. So that's where that connection felt really near and dear to me in a way, even though, you know, NWA was talking about Compton and experience so far away. But in Springfield, it felt like the same experience. Like people got addicted really fast, people that I knew, and then people went to jail or disappeared in ways that I hadn't experienced up to that point. So I felt like that was a major politicizing moment for me. it was like 1986 or 87. Crack was just bewildering. I had close family members, like people that I saw all the time, who just started disappearing. And it wasn't like they were gone completely. They just weren't, you know, they weren't as rounded as much. Like if you saw them every week, you started to see them like once a month. And so we didn't really know what was happening, that we knew there was something, and we knew about like cocaine, but crack was so different than cocaine in terms of it's like how quick people got addicted to it. So those close family members who just kind of disappeared or sort of were on the outskirts and of the family in ways they hadn't been before. And then like people that I went to high school with started selling it. And so people that you like hung out with in your freshman and sophomore year that I remember vividly, you know, by junior year and senior year, they weren't around anymore. They were either in a different city or being tried as adults or just gone. Like it's hard to explain. Like they just, I don't know if I wrapped my head around it yet, but they just weren't around anymore. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who the fuck are you talking to? Do you know the fuck I am? Man, I can't believe this shit. This bitch is trying to gank me. Yo, I'll slap you inside your head with nine inches of lip dick. You need a nigga with money so you get a dope man. Juice that fool for as much as you can. She like his 
fuck he got two just like it just really changed sort of a a sense of collective community that we had like those house parties started to dwindle as one example and it was just so much more of a rougher addiction than anything else like you could smoke pot and not sort of become a different person but with crack you became a different person and it just changed people's lives in terms of in terms of addiction but also in terms of like their proximity to the criminal justice system or whatever we call it like that proximity just got closer and closer so people who were 18 really did go to jail and and they just weren't there anymore so and that makes a huge difference when your community is like 2000 people and then the people that you hang around with are like i don't know 80 and then it dwindles down to 50 or something and and those people are just gone So it's this conversation between the dope man and someone who's using. There are all these different stories of different people who are addicted to it. You know, there's the story of Strawberry, who is like this woman who they refer to derogatorily. She's a sex worker or a prostitute, and and she's addicted to crack. So she'll sleep with people in order to get. a hit of crack and I think partly it was like the stories that I found resonant and also kind of the song quality of it it has kind of a song quality in terms of like the chorus is like dope man dope man <laughs> hey man give me a hit or whatever some of that pulled you in but it was mostly like that it was just so much what was happening at the time in my community You gotta get your knees dirty. Now that's my life. That's how it's cut. Hey, dope man, bitch, shut the fuck up. Gotta make a run. It's a big money deal. Yankers got the fake, but you can get the real from the. I lived in a house with white people, so my parents were divorced, and I grew up with my mother and my grandmother. I mean, I saw my father, but so it was a mixture of racism in my family. not necessarily with those two people but in a, in my extended family and growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood and then of course going to a predominantly white school as the only black person in your neighborhood in your school it was that plus a mixture of being kind of politicized by my mother 
who wanted me to have some sense of being black. So I was, there was never a question of not being like close to my family. My dad, even though they were divorced, and my grandmother, my dad's mother, played a huge role in my life. But it was also the 70s, so there was this kind of weird black power sentiment coming from my white mother, right? Like coupled with the racism in my family. So I'd say prior to being five, I knew about racism. And, and you know, my parents were, you know, they were good friends before they got married. So even though they, like their marriage didn't work out, they liked each other a lot. But they were a little bit sort of products of the 60s. Like the year they got married was the year that Martin Luther King was shot. And then shortly after I was born, my father's best friend was shot by the police. He was also African-American. So there was this like, there was always this consciousness about race and black people in particular and their relationship interracial couple in, in a racist town so I had a sense of racism and not being white really early. Field when I was 18 and went to college and right sort of on the heels of finding out about close members of my family, my father included, being addicted to crack. So like that sort of was the push out of Springfield. He went into recovery that same year and sort of the push to get out of the town and go to college was both like a break from that experience like, nobody went to college with me. None of my, like, peers went to the same college. Like, my experience was really different from other people that I met. I was on scholarship. I mostly hung around with white people in my dorm, and they were mostly middle class. And so I did a lot of hiding, I think, in college. Like, I didn't really bring any of that hip-hop experience with me, necessarily. And you know, just tried to be like a good college student, which in the in the place that I went, more so than being African-American, was meant sort of mimicking a middle-class lifestyle that I wasn't really familiar with. So in college, I kind of hid a lot, I think, until I became a women's studies major and became kind of politicized around reproductive rights and sexual assault and and women's studies started working in women's studies and organizing for that on campus. Until that, the first two years, I kind of kept my head down a little bit and actually musically started getting into like the Grateful Dead, which is an interesting moment in my like, musical life. It was really fun. Those were sort of the people that I, the crowd that I fell into. He was.
bass head, that album. Better Days, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just remember loving it. It was really sort of ironic and he had a similar sense of humor or something that I did and he, you know, he's, he sounded kind of like he was high maybe or something when he was doing it. You know, he kind of felt like the kind of quirky or sort of nerdy black person that I felt like I, I was. So it felt at that time a little more resonant because at that time I wasn't really in a black community in the same way that I had been when I was in high school and I didn't have any connection to that. And I had always kind of, even in those spaces, felt a little different. So I liked how he felt kind of different and he was, you know, he just felt like that kind of black nerd or something. And even when I listened to it for this interview, I was really kind of excited by it. A case of when the LA riots happened again something that was very far away from me but at the same time felt like such such a response a response by like young people that that were african-american and it felt like such a, a pushback and in that moment I think I sort of got back into who I was, which was all these things. It wasn't like I wasn't someone who went to see the Grateful Dead and enjoyed those shows and enjoyed that community, but I didn't feel like I was hiding as much anymore. But I was very much like I'm not listening to sexist hip-hop, and I think that's why Basehead was appealing. Like, it didn't feel like sexist in the same way as Luther Campbell or someone like that. And then just the sound of, of people like Tribe Called Quest and Diggable Planets and and De La Soul, but that whole sound was also something that was really appealing. Like the samples that they used, what they talked about, like Tripod Quest was so, you know, rooted in a black politic that was, that was appealing, but it seemed to like go along with my own politicization and feminist studies, but also what was happening, particularly around like the LA riots. to 
I applied to the Women's Studies program at San Francisco State, which is where I teach now. I applied to that right out of college and got accepted, but I wanted to take a couple of years off. Even though I was like really sort of guided by getting out of my hometown, I wasn't ready yet to like move that far away from home. So I took two years off and then I went to this um, master's program in Memphis, specifically because it was a program founded by two black women and a white woman. So it was founded by like Bonnie Thornton Dill and Elizabeth Higginbotham, who were these black feminists, and, and Lynn Weber, who was a working class white woman. They did like research on, on working class experiences, both black and white. So it was both like that intersection of race, class, and gender that was really appealing to me and went along with sort of kind of like that coming out, not like coming out as queer, but like coming out as like working class and poor that I very much was at that time. Like so much of it was kind of an unnumbing process and like a more accepting process internally that led me to this profession and led me to those topics in particular. So I kind of went back to who I was in a lot of ways. This is where that distinction comes out. Like, I think most people think of Missouri as the South, if you're not there, but we always thought of ourselves, and I still really feel like someone who grew up in the Midwest, just like the temperament of people and the way race relations work. And that was really clear when I moved to Memphis. It just felt like something I hadn't experienced before. Like, a friend of mine and I were bike riding through a neighborhood, both women of color, and we were asked to leave. It was a predominantly white area and the security guard came and asked us to not ride our bikes through there. And it wasn't like a gated community or anything like that. But I hadn't really experienced racism like that where I was asked, asked to leave a place. And then you, you would just hear these stories about people, that same friend went to a friend of hers house who grew up in Memphis and they were going through the back door and she was like, oh no, you guys can come through the front door like white people. <laughs> and like, you know, that kind of like experience and language. And then just like the extreme sort of segregation. It was interesting to ride my bike through Memphis a lot because you would get into these neighborhoods that were very poor, kind of with like that neighborhood and hustle and flow that was like actually filmed in different parts of Memphis, you know. I had also never seen that kind of rural poverty among African Americans. Memphis was like set up where you could take like these four different expressways. It was like, I don't know the names of them now, but like Southern, Northern, Eastern, and Western Parkway, which were just these highways that would go around the city so you could avoid all the outskirts of these really poor, mostly black neighborhoods. And I had never experienced that kind of structural racism and economic and geographic racism in Missouri.
graduation and uh, from Morehouse in Atlanta and it was during that trip that I first heard Michelle Inigo-Cello's Plantation Lullabies and I was just hooked. That was like the time that I was coming out as at the time as bisexual and so her music and her sort of explicitness around being openly bisexual is how she identified you know, I was hooked. Some of the songs on Plantation Lullabies were really hip-hop and that she was kind of rapping and playing bass and just doing all of those things. You know, it was just a rich sound and it incorporated so much more than sort of what hip-hop had become, which was just rap. Like, all of that music did, but then Michelle Indigo Cello, I mean, I think a lot of it was her sound and her storytelling in particular and what she talked about was along the same lines of, of how I had been politicized or was being politicized at that time. And she was queer, so that was exciting. Her voice was amazing. <laughs> like the her cadence and how she told the story. It felt like an intervention. She was talking about things that I didn't feel like were really popular. Like I think at the time the Cosby show was ending and in terms of popular culture and it was like a year after the LA riots and I just felt like she was telling stories about African-American life that, that still weren't being told, and being told in such a humanizing way. Like, it wasn't like she was talking about crime or drugs or sex in a way that was dehumanizing, which is how I felt like black people were being talked about. So she had this, the stories that she told in step into the projects. She kind of ends that with like step into the projects where I found love, like there was something else that happened there besides whatever we have in our cultural imagination about what happened in the project. Serenaded by the violence outside my window. Project aristocrats gather, realizing that the hearts of mine shack about the lines, but he finds peace when he looks into our eyes. See her blackness the blackness of her skin, the blackness of her mind. Step into, step into the projects where I found love. I think black radio didn't play her, sort of, because she was bisexual and she was out. I mean, she came out early on, I think, in an interview with Greg Tate about her sexuality, and so that became the focus. And then I also think the sound didn't fit in with, like, rap strictly or it didn't fit necessarily in like an R&B market. 
Like, I think Tony Braxton was popular at that time. That was like your R&B soul singer. So yeah, she created like Jill Scott and Erica Badu and all of these people that had this niche later on. So I think it was a mixture. Like, I think people couldn't categorize her musically. And then she did that song with John Mellencamp, that remake of Wild Night, I think, that Van Morrison song. And she was bald and, you know, and she played bass. Like, she had all of these, like, she wasn't e easily categorized. Like, just the name of that album, Plantation Lullabies, <laughs> you know, was, like, referring to such a kind of the haunting of slavery, but sort of the beauty of what came out of that in a way. So she was like playing around with racism in a way that I think is really interesting and then not like ignoring things that were happening, especially to the black community at that time. AIDS was impacting, is impacting the black community and she referenced that and then later on with Peace Beyond Passion, which was like a different, a different album in, in terms of musically, but the same kinds of themes. Like there's a song on that album called Faggot, which is about a black queer experience that is so much about being black, religious, working class, and queer. Like she talked about all of that in her lyrics and even in the presentation of the music because she kind of used rap in her delivery, the way she told her stories was in that sort of hip-hop vein. The medium that she was using was so much more about an explicit storytelling that I think is really based in hip-hop, but that explicitness was so much about who she was as a black queer woman. Hey, fat, but run, 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 with a boyfriend that I had had for a long time who I cared about a lot. And it was partly why our relationship ended. I mean, we had been together for six years from like 19 to 25 or something. And, and I came out in the context of that relationship as bisexual and sort of hung out with other bisexual women. Um, and so it was much more just an identity, not really a practice, but it was an identity that I felt like sort of spoke to spoke to who I was. And, and part of our, our breaking up was like the, the different ways we were going in our lives. Like he wanted to move back to Chicago. I was moving on to graduate school. But it was also very much about like my attraction to women and wanting to be with women. Once I did start dating women, which was a couple years after our relationship ended, I felt like that was really the place that I felt most at home, probably in, than any of these other places that I've mentioned. Not that it's not a community without its problems, but it felt like that was like a community of, of people. And there was some place 
in the queer community that I could be all of these things. I could be queer and black and I could be everything that I am. My mother was sort of the, she was sort of the black sheep of her family, right? I can't think of another way to phrase that. So she was very, very accepting. You know, I came up to her after my relationship with my boyfriend ended. So she was accepting of that. But it's still, she sort of struggled with it when I actually had girlfriends. Like she couldn't figure out how to ask me about them. And I think she had some mourning around not having children in the way that she, you know, all the classic things that you hear people. But initially she was very accepting. And my dad, one thing I didn't say was that when I found out when he went through rehab was when our relationship sort of got closer. Like through college it was a little bit rocky because I think I was grappling with trying to figure out how to reconcile something I didn't know about him and that it was something like being addicted to drugs. And, but then we just got a lot closer and so by that time you know, my dad, I think his words were like, I'd still walk you down the aisle if you married a woman. You know, he was just very much like, whatever. Like, I, I don't think he was, I don't think he was phased by it because we were just kind of getting back into each other's lives close. And I had always accepted him. I mean, he's never said this to me, but I had always accepted him, even though I struggled with things. So I don't think it was a question for him. Davis because I got money to go to Davis and this professor I wanted to work with and the proximity part of the selling point was the proximity to all these different places like the Bay Area and I knew that there were walkouts that were happening in the Bay Area I wanted to be close to the Bay Area in terms of what I was studying so that was part of why I came to Davis was that proximity and then so once I was done with my coursework I moved to Oakland specifically to do to do research and also be in, in Oakland because I had wanted to be in the Bay Area since I graduated from college and applied to San Francisco State initially. That move was really great in terms of like the work I wanted to do with young people, specifically like young people who were organizing around Proposition 21 specifically at the time, but also 
being trained as organizers to address racism and classism and sexism in their communities. So immediately upon moving to Oakland, I got involved with different organizations as an organizer and a facilitator, and then later on as a researcher. Who shot Biggie Smalls? If we don't get them, they gon' get us all. I'm down for running up on them. 
Washington, they city hall. We ride for y'all, all my dogs, stay real. Don't think these record deals gon' feed your season, pay your bills because they not. MCs get a little bit of love and think they hot. Talk about how much money they got. All y'all records sound the same. I'm sick of that fake thug R&B rap scenario all day on the radio. Same scenes in the video, monotonous material. Y'all don't hear me though. These record labels slang, I taste like dope. You could be next in line and sign and still be writing rhymes and wrote. You would rather have a Lexus or Justice, a dream or some substance, a beamer or a necklace or freedom. Sisters like me don't play, hey, I just stay awake. It's real hip hop and it don't stop till we get the popo off the block. They call it. I don't know, I think it's interesting that I did sort of stop talking about hip hop after 1993. I mean, the work that I I do right now and sort of the things that I think about are, are still like around queer sexuality and hip-hop or around black popular music in particular like there has always been a queer hip-hop presence it hasn't been like popular music but I think like in hip-hop people do things interesting things around queerness at the same time that it gets like marked as homophobic so sort of the limited ways that we think about queer sexuality in general in popular culture but specifically in music and in hip-hop and even more specifically i think are things that i want to look at some things that Nicki minaj does definitely things that janelle monet does you know i think the last thing that sort of got marked as queer hip-hop was what people were calling sissy bounce from the south in particular and I think the media really kind of jumped on that as queer hip-hop, even though there, there has been this long community of queer hip-hop artists, which I think doesn't get played in the clubs very much, but I think needs to be re-examined in a way. Like, Oakland had Deep Dick Collective, a queer hip-hop group, and then there's Yo Majesty, it was a queer hip-hop group. There's Invincible from Detroit, who does, like talk some about being queer but it's more sort of politicized around her lyrics also look at like Palestine there's just these like interventions queer interventions happening in hip-hop and in, and for me in black popular music that I'm interested in exploring further while they tried to drive the ambulance so they couldn't stand a chance even bomb students hospitals mass rafa and Khan Yunus shot them in they back like the cops to oscar grant and in each case the good old united states sponsored that seven million a day that we pay tax and apex lobbyists is robbing us sometimes it feels like there ain't no stopping this but now nobody can deny it because you made it too obvious naked truth exposed like the emperor's clothes the struggle's getting hotter and the temperature rose since 1948 when you the state palestinian people still defending their homes they ain't been surrendering no oh i definitely think it matters it it's such an important site for people to see images either of themselves or images that they can really engage with like it's such an important site for what i would say for people of color and then like in this recent moment for women of color as like a place that we can really be seen and heard in terms of like critique hip-hop feminism and people like the Trump Feminist Collective and, and different like feminist voices that 
are hip-hop feminist voices that are really committed to both. Hip-hop is such an important site. I've talked about just in terms of my own politicization because of what it allowed me to think about and how to let me think about it. And just academically and as a feminist, it's allowed me to have such a voice, like in terms of both support and critique in places that I don't think I would I would have a similar a similar voice.